you know, I have very vivid memories of when I was a teen and how, um, you know, other girls would make fun of like the food I ate um, or they would, you know, they would just like make fun of stuff or they would put down things about my culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But then they would, you know, be like, oh, Indian culture is so cool. I love henna. I love the jewelry. I love the clothes. And at the time, I obviously didn't really have the language to understand what was happening or mm-hmm. to really speak about it. Um, but now, having grown, grown older, I know, like, it was... It was, you know, cultural appropriation. It was people picking and choosing what they liked and what they yes. didn't like. Yep. Um, so now I have the language to express that. Hello everyone, welcome to a brand new season of Brown Don't Frown, a podcast which was inspired by my own personal story and journey with womanhood and feminism. It's a podcast where we celebrate new perspectives and unconventional thinking. Brown Don't Frown seeks to build a more inclusive discourse which breaks down the prejudice and assumptions about different passions, opinions and cultures and shines a light on the stories of underrepresented women who do not fit the typical criteria or ideals of mainstream feminism. I am your host, Tani Hardcastle. Today's guest is Adiba Jagidar, author of Young Adult Fiction Books, The Henna Wars and Hanian Issues Guide to Fake Dating. She was born in Dhaka, Bangladesh, but moved to Dublin, Ireland when she was 10. So welcome, Adiba, to Brown Don't Frown. How are you? Thank you so much for having me here. Um, I'm doing really well. And actually, I just want to say, first of all, that um, you are the first person who has gotten my name completely correct, like from the beginning. And you pronounce my first name as well in the Bengali way because I've had to westernize it. Yeah. Um, so that's that's really nice to hear my name pronounced correctly from the very beginning. Oh, fantastic. I'm so glad. Yeah, I'm glad I got it right. I I do try and practice my Bengali as much as I can, but sometimes it's difficult when all my friends are non-Bengali and the only chance I get to practice my Bengali is usually with my grandma, but she passed away a couple of years ago. So it's mainly with my mum now that I that I practice it whenever I get the chance. And she always insists that I speak to her in English. So this is a bit of a battle, but um, yeah, language is really, I love Bengali. So, I mean, where are you in the world currently and, and what's life been like for you in these current very chaotic times? So I am in Dublin, Ireland, and things, I mean, I've, I've really just been at home. Um, I've been working from home, you know, just doing my writing mm. um, and doing like a lot of digital events. Um, so it hasn't been like that bad, but um, it is pretty bad in Ireland in general right now. Um, we're on like lockdown, everything is closed, um, which is a real shame because um, during the first phase of the virus, um, Ireland did really well in kind of locking down very fast and handling everything um but then this time around i don't know what happened so things haven't been great this time around um but hopefully you know with the vaccines and everything 
Um, we've started administering the vaccine. So hoping that, you know, in the near future, things will be getting back to normal. Yes, here's hoping. Um, So yeah, I mean, let's get stuck in. Um, Try not to focus on the negative (laughs) COVID-related news. It's very difficult not to do all that doom scrolling I found recently, but I am Mm -hmm. trying to avoid and limit my, uh, my time on the on the news channels. Um, so yeah, we can begin by talking a bit more about your inspirations and motivations for your writing. I suppose it makes sense to begin with the Henna Wars, which came out back in May last year. And yeah, firstly, huge congratulations on that. What does it feel like uh, for you to be a published author? It still honestly doesn't feel real sometimes. And I think part of that is that Like while my book has come out and, you know, I see pictures of it and I read reviews, um, I am still just sitting at home. I haven't, you know, signed any copies. I haven't seen the book in bookshops. Um, I haven't met any readers. Mm -hmm. So um, sometimes it feels like a bit surreal, a bit difficult to believe. Um, I think it's probably the same for all authors um, in these times because we've had to adjust to like a different way of doing everything. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like overall, it's been really great. Um, I've I've had so much support um, like from readers, um, but also like, you know, my publisher has been great. Um, and yeah, I just I feel very, very lucky to have published this book. I feel very lucky with all the love and support that it has received. Mm-hmm. And I hope that, you know, it continues to reach the people that it needs to reach. Yeah, absolutely. And as a brown author whose books are about brown girls, did you find it particularly challenging finding an agent who you could trust to represent you and your written work and bring it into the mainstream? I honestly think um, I got quite lucky in finding my agent very fast and in finding an agent um, from the get-go who is incredibly supportive, who just really gets it. Um, I I did um, try to find an agent with another book before, and I didn't mm-hmm. have any luck with that. Um, but with this book, I think um, like the stars aligned. Um, I found an agent within, I think, a month of starting to look for one. Oh, wow. um, and then I had a book deal quite fast. And um, a lot of that was just down to um, like rom-com suddenly being very popular. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I do feel I do feel like I got lucky in a lot of ways. And yeah, my agent, when I was looking for an agent, you know, I was very careful. Um, I asked a lot of questions and I I had a very good look at every single person that I was um, querying to see, you know, what kind of books they were representing and if they had diversity in their clientele. Mm-hmm. And my agent, you know, he's he's great. He has such a diverse list and he does, you know, so much um he does so much to support like his diverse clients. Um, mm. So I, I feel like I got very, very lucky in that regard. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad that you had a positive experience. And my next question was going to me uh, be whether there were any setbacks in your publishing journey. But apart from the the first initial contact that you had with with an agent, I guess everything else was pretty smooth sailing. And it's awesome that you're able to, yeah, get it published. And as you said, I think the the sort of keenness at the moment that we're seeing for rom-coms I think a lot of people want a feel-good story because of everything that's going on so yeah in that sense I guess you're very lucky but not to admonish your um 
amazing writing skills, I'm sure. And hopefully I'll be receiving my copy of the Henna Wars in the post in the next couple of days. So I'll certainly be reading it and giving you some feedback. And I wanted to ask you, um, so in the book, the the main character, Nishat, in the Henna Wars book, is a uh, Bangladeshi Muslim teen living in Dublin who has just come out to her parents as a lesbian. She and another team then go on to create rival henna businesses for a school competition, end up taking or end up falling for each other. Are there any themes of her character that you've taken from your own personal experiences? And is there anything in particular which inspired you to write the plot and characters of the book? Yes, there are definitely a lot of themes in the book that come from my experience. Um, Mm. I think just in general, Nishad goes through a lot of things that I and also a lot of my friends experienced um, Mm. now or we experienced when we were younger. So obviously a big thing of the book, a big theme of the book is cultural appropriation. And, you know, I have very vivid memories of when I was a teen and how, um, you know, other girls would make fun of like the food I ate um, or they would, you know, they would just like make fun of stuff or they would put down things about my culture. Mm. Um, But then they would, you know, be like, oh, Indian culture is so cool. I love henna. I love the jewelry. I love the clothes. And at the time, I obviously didn't really have the language to understand what was happening or Mm. to really speak about it. Um, But now having grown, grown older, I know like it was, it was, you know, cultural appropriation. It was people picking and choosing what they liked and what they yeah. didn't like. Yeah. Um, so now I have the language to express that. And so I did that in this book. Um, but even like the other things, like the racism, homophobia, Islamophobia that Nishad goes through, so much of it is just, you know, things that I've experienced in different ways, um, not necessarily in the same way that Nishad does, but definitely, you know, part of my life when I was a teen and a part of my life now as well. Um, And then in terms of characters, um, Flavia is Brazilian um, and I have been very lucky to have a lot of Brazilian friends. Mm. And as a teacher, I've had a lot of Brazilian students as well. Um, There's a there's a massive Brazilian population in Ireland. Oh, wow. Um, Mm. So, yeah, it's great. Like it's a great Brazilian community here. so I've learned, you know, so much about Brazil. I've learned so much about Brazilian culture. Um, I learned like two or three phase, phrases in Portuguese as well. Um, not a lot. Um, so, you know, all of that really went into the book as well. Um, like I was trying to write Flavia, um, obviously like as a flawed character, um, a character who has learning to do, but also a character that I hope showcases um, you know, all that the fact that I've had the privilege of knowing so many really wonderful Brazilian people. Mm, that sounds really amazing. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading it. And yeah, I mean, I completely resonate with you on the cultural appropriation front. I mean, I guess the henna is a very poignant example because it's something that I used to wear growing up as a kid. And a lot of people just said, you know, what is that brown stuff? And now it's being appropriated all over the place. You know, people add it as an accessory on their hands, on their arms, on different parts of their bodies. And perhaps the sacredness of it to to an extent has been lost as a result of that so it's a really interesting example that you use and I'm sure it's it's a fantastic theme that runs across the book and then the symbolism of it um, in the novel I'm sure will be very interesting to read about Um, yeah I think I think the henna 
like was was very important to put into the book just because because of what you said because um it is something that is very aesthetically pleasing I suppose and that's really the only way that a lot of people see it um when it hasn't been a part of culture a part of their culture but obviously um for South Asians um and for Muslims yes um henna is you know used a lot for like ceremony it's used for weddings for Eid um exactly and even you know my uncles and my aunts would put henna like on their hair or my uncles would use it for their beard it's used as like so in so many different ways and it's funny to me because um like when you grow up with all of these things and then suddenly a white person would be like, did you know that henna could be used to make your hair healthier? Um, like it's like, like they've just discovered it. Yeah. And it's just very funny to me because that happens like so often. Yes, it does. Um, so I think it's just those experiences that really made me want to use henna for this book. Mm. Mm. And it's, it's a point of contention as well, because the, you know, the rival businesses over it. So yeah, mm-hmm. very, very interesting. Um, and I was going to ask you, you know, Nishat being true to herself in the face of resentment of fear of, you know, rejection from her family is, is a key theme that runs across the book. And what do you hope that queer teens and young women of color, particularly practicing Muslims will take away from this book? I think, first of all, I hope that um, they can kind of see a reflection of themselves in the book, um, because I think when you grow up as um, a queer teen and specifically um, a queer Muslim teen, you can feel very, very lonely. Yes. Um, you can feel like you're the only person in the world kind of experiencing this, um, who has this marginalization. Um, I know I felt like that a lot. Mm. Um, so I hope that, you know, they can read this book and they can see a reflection and they can know that they aren't the only person experiencing these things. They're not alone in this world. There are other people who have these experiences. Yes. Um, And I hope that they can also take away, you know, like Nishat's resilience. Um, They can take away that um, even if there are people telling you that there is something wrong with your identity or with your marginalizations, Mm. um, there isn't. And you just need to have that faith in yourself and you just Mm. need to, you know, believe in yourself and love yourself. That's the most important thing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, It's so important to emphasize that because people do forget get bogged down with you know cultural expectations you know age-old traditions and some of which you know are certainly very outdated now and it's I think it can be difficult to bring uh some people especially the old generation to the fore because they are so set in their ways and I'm sure history repeats Mm -hmm. itself because I feel like when I'm old when I get old I'm probably going to be super stubborn about certain things or traditions that I've grown up with which I want to pass down to younger generations and not and then sort of losing the sort of importance of changing times changing scenes and not appreciating that so it's something for me that I always constantly try and remind myself when I try and you know empathize or put my put myself in the shoes of someone who's older than me or who might have you know completely different views to mine so yeah really really interesting um and as someone who moved from Taka, Bangladesh to Dublin, Ireland as a kid, would you mind telling us the impact, I guess, both positive and negative that had on you in relation to your identity and sense of belonging? Yeah, so I think there were definitely positives and negatives. Um, 
And, you know, it's been a really interesting experience. Um, and sometimes or often I feel like I am the only person who has had this experience. Um, and honestly, like I'm kind of convinced that I am because <laughs> I because um, I didn't actually really grow up in Taka. I only lived there um, until I was three. And then I lived between Taka and um, a town in Saudi Arabia. Um, so wow. every six months I would live in each place that's crazy um, oh my god yeah and, <laughs> and and after that I moved to Ireland so I am pretty sure I am the only person who has had that experience and yes. I will be very shocked if I meet somebody else with that experience that isn't my brother um, <laughs> so I, I think because of that reason you know I've had a very um, unique upbringing um, and I do think it's a privilege um, even though sometimes, you know, th- things are very tough, but it is a privilege because I got to experience um, these three very, very different countries, um, which have their own very different cultures. Mm-hmm. And I got to meet so many, you know, interesting people, so many different people and just learn a lot and grow up in a very multicultural setting, I guess. Yes. Um, so I do feel very privileged. I think, you know, being able to move around, um, it really helped me become who I am today. Yes. Um, I know that, you know, I've had friends who will say, I've basically like not really traveled anywhere, but I was traveling, you know, since I was three years old. Yeah. Um, so it's it, it's been a great privilege to do that. Um, and also, I think like having the experience of moving to Dublin um, and being able to grow up here um, obviously also gave me so much privilege and so much perspective on life. Um, just having you know an Irish passport, um, it affords you so many privileges that I did not have mm. um, when I wasn't an Irish citizen. Um, like traveling back to Bangladesh before I got my passport was so incredibly difficult. Oh my goodness. Um, even applying for my citizenship, you know, expensive. Yes. Um, you need like so much stuff that you've never even thought about. Um, you need to dig through so many records. Yeah. yeah. It's so difficult. And I think like experiencing all of those things, it really makes you understand um, like a little bit about, you know, like difficulties in this world and gives you so much perspective um, on so many things. Um, And I think even the fact that my book is published here, it's definitely um, a privilege that I maybe would not have been afforded if I had not moved to Ireland, if mm. I was still living in Taka, if maybe, you know, my English wasn't as good, if I had, you know, a Bangladeshi accent versus the accent that I have now. Mm. Um, just, you know, you you never really know what, what your life would be like if this didn't happen or that didn't happen. Mm. Um, but I do think, you know, moving to Dublin, Ireland has been a huge privilege for mm. me. Um, and I feel very, I feel very lucky to be part of both of these cultures because they are both very important to me. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure they sh- they've shaped who you are in in many different ways. Um, and yes, yeah, some of the examples you mm-hmm. shared um, were definitely, uh, I guess, I could resonate with them. I've moved around quite a lot myself. I mean, I was born in London, but then I moved. Um, I moved around within London quite a lot when I was a kid and then I ended up moving to um, Florida of all places for two years when I was 12 and then when we came back (laughs) I ended up moving to um, the northeast in Teesside and that was a huge cultural shock for me Um, and then when I went to university as well I then moved again and then actually spent a year in France as part of my degree so yeah I mean I've, I've moved around 
quite a lot myself and some of the comments that you said, you know, that you made um, can certainly reflect on and, and share those sympathies with you in terms of giving you a sense of perspective, helping you appreciate that, you know, things aren't easy for a lot of the, a lot of people around the world and sympathizing mm-hmm. with a huge problem that we have at the moment, which is, you know, refugees and migrants who are, you know, fleeing their homes for various reasons. And obviously I, I, I wasn't a refugee, but you know, the, the fact that you've got to completely uproot yourself and go and move to a different country with completely different cultural expectations, learning a new language, things like that, I think I can certainly uh, empathise with the people who have to go and make those sorts of tough decisions and, and tough journeys. I wanted to ask you, actually, I mean, what was, was, was there anything that mm-hmm. prompted your, your family to move over to Ireland or was it just something that you thought would be cool? Um, it was basically because of my dad's job. Oh, um, I see. It was yeah. the same reason why we moved to Saudi Arabia. Um, and he he had actually been looking to find a job in the UK. Um, but at the time, Ireland were looking for people um in his career. So um so in, in his like field. Okay. So we ended up moving to Ireland. We had never heard of Ireland before then. <laughs> oh my god, wow. I'm sure, I, I don't know if you know this, but um, even now, if you tell Bangladeshi people, like, I'm, I'm, I live in Ireland, I live in Dublin, they'll be like, London. Um, <laughs> they don't, they don't understand it. They're very confused. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love it. I think in the same fashion, I, I think if you said to someone, um, you know, I'm from, I don't know, Silet, they'd be like, so where is that? You've got to always like talk yeah. about the most <laughs> metropolitan city of any country for people to actually understand or understand as you know have some sort of understanding of whereabouts you're from on on the world map (laughs) that's funny um I mean to what extent would you say that your upbringing so your cultural religious and familial experiences have shaped who you are today and for you um what are some of the best things about Bengali and some of the best things about Dublin life or you know being an Irish citizen so the extent to which my cultural upbringing has shaped me. I think, I think a huge, to a huge extent, um, definitely um, my culture and the way that I was raised um, informs who I am. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think, I think it's, it's the case for really everyone, um, whether it's you are, you know, connecting with your culture um, and, that that has shaped you or whether you're rebelling against it and that yes. has shaped you um or a combination of both um so you know that that is true for me as well um i think when i was a teenager i had a very difficult time um reconciling who i was with my culture mm. um just because um because you know i didn't really feel like i fit in um so that was that was difficult at the time, I didn't really have the language to talk about it or to work through it. Yeah. Once I met people of color, um, I could see how they were relating to their culture. And that kind of helped me reconcile myself and my relationship with my culture. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely been like a big thing in how, you know, in the person that I am now. Mm. That's really, that's really good. And I guess I was going to ask you about Dublin life. Do you do you enjoy um, being in being an Irish citizen, and what's it like there compared to your time in Saudi Arabia, for example? Um, yes, I really like being a Dublin citizen for 
a lot of reasons. Um, one of the main ones, I guess, is the Irish passport is like the best passport you can have. Um, so that's great um, for traveling, especially as, you know, somebody who previously just held a Bangladeshi passport because I could essentially not travel anywhere with that. Um, but now with the Irish passport, I can go anywhere and that's great. Um, but Dublin life is is great. Um, it's so peaceful. It's so quiet. Um, I live I live like on the outskirts of Dublin. Mm. Dublin <laughs> is very different from Bangladesh. Um, yes. And I really like Bangladesh as well. But um, it is it's very peaceful. It's very quiet. And I think that really suits my personality. Mm. Well, that's really good. I've been to Dublin once a few years ago and I had a really great time. It was very cold. I think I went when it was around Christmas time. So it was all very pretty. But yes, I was extremely cold. But to be fair, it's very cold here right now in London. So I think most of the time London is actually colder than Dublin. So you Mm. probably came in like a year where we just had um, a drop in temperature. Mm. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, it's a very cool city, Dublin. There's a lot to do. and But I know it's very expensive to live there. It is extremely expensive, especially now. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's very expensive. As a queer mus- Muslim woman, seeing yourself represented in the mainstream is unequivocally important to you, no doubt. And I would ask, you know, what did you learn about yourself when bringing your characters to life? And secondly, uh, your family and friends, uh, have they been supportive? Um, so I I don't necessarily think I learned something when I was writing the book, but I mm. did. I, I feel like I learned a lot um, after the book um, came out okay. because I just saw so many um, queer queer Muslims um, and queer people of color in general and Bangladeshis, um, even non-queer ones, become so, so excited about this book. Oh, really? I was going to ask you what the reception was um, amongst yeah, uh, yeah, it's been it's been a great reception um, okay. from so many Bangladeshi people. And honestly, um, I was, you know, worried um, with this book coming out. I know that, you know, I knew that there would be um, a lot of support, but I was worried about what kind of backlash I might receive. Yes. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, you know, there hasn't really been any kind of backlash. Mm. Um, I think the day that the book came out in the US, um, I just remember so many Bangladeshi people on Twitter um, quote tweeting my release day tweet um, just to say, you know, I've never read a book um, with a Bangladeshi protagonist. And this one is written by a Bangladeshi author mm. and just seeing the excitement. And yeah. I think, I, you know, I, I I don't really know what I expected, but I didn't really expect that kind of a reception. Mm. Um, so that was, you know, wonderful to see. And I think I just learned that um, there are a lot more queer Muslims and queer Bangladeshis out there than yes. I had realized. Yeah. And I, I'm really glad to see that. Yeah, it's amazing that you've empowered them in this way to speak so positively about your book and the fact that, you know, that there aren't that many authors uh, who are Muslim, who are queer, who, you know, base their characters in their novels on themselves or on queer Muslim women, you know, so I think that's Mm -hmm. pretty incredible. And on top of that, you know, being Bangladeshi, living in the Western diaspora is something that we don't see very often. So it's really, really amazing to hear that you had such a positive reaction from people from across the world and over in the US as well. 
Um, and yeah, it's just getting me more and more excited now to read the book. Uh, you also have a another book coming out, uh, Honey mm-hmm. and Issues Guide to Fake Dating, coming out later mm-hmm. this year. Would you mind telling us a bit more about that book? Yes. So Honey and Issues Guide to Fake Dating is about um, this girl called Humaira Honey Khan. And um, she decides to come out to her parents, uh, not to her parents, she decides to come out to her friends as bisexual. Mm. Um, but they they tell her that she can't be bi unless she has kissed a girl. So she tells them that she is actually in a relationship with um, one of their classmates called uh, Ishita Ishide. Um, so the two of them have something to gain from um, this fake relationship with each other. Um, mm. So they decide to start this whole fake dating plot. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to that coming out. Um, and no doubt, uh, the positive rece- reception that you got from your first book must have spurred you on to write another one. Um, I can tell that there are some similar themes from the first book, um, but I'm looking forward to, I guess, the character analysis with the second book. Um, and to listeners of this podcast, and particularly queer women of colour from the South Asian diaspora or you know Bangladeshi diaspora who are aspiring novelists, what is one piece of advice that you'd give them, which you've learned from your own experience as a newly published author? Um, I think I would say to them that... Um, there are a lot of people out there who are waiting to read your story mm. and who are waiting um, to see that reflection of themselves in the stories that you're writing. Um, so, you know, the industry is difficult and writing is difficult, but there are people here who need your story. Yep, that sounds like a very positive um, piece of advice and very encouraging as well. So I usually ask my guests to quote um present an extract from a book that they've recently read uh, and explain how they relate it to any feminist theme or any other theme uh, which they strongly relate to. Um, I I think it'd be interesting aside from that as well to hear your perspective on uh, mainstream feminism and whether or not you think it is inclusive of queer women and particularly queer women of colour. Um, I actually I totally forgot about this part of your question so I don't I don't have I don't have an extract That's okay. um, but I can I can find one if you want no um, no it's fine <laughs> you don't have to I can uh, yeah my my opinion of um, mainstream feminism I can definitely give you that <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I you know I have called myself a feminist for a very long time I think that I was a feminist um, you know when I was a teen, I was a very strong feminist. Mm. Um, I really felt like this was something that I could fight for. And I think the reason for that was because um, a lot of my friends were um, white women. Mm. And I didn't have the language to speak about my experiences as like a Muslim and as a brown woman. Mm. Um, And then, you know, I went to college and I (laughs) you know not to be a cliche but I read like bell hooks and Angela Davis um and I just learned so much from them that I could have never even imagined um from you know everything about feminism that I had learned before that um and I I think that as the feminist movement is now or as feminism is now I I really don't think it's inclusive um Mm. of 
of queer women, of women of color, definitely not of Muslim women. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been in a lot of feminist circles. Um, you know, a lot of my friends would call themselves feminists. And I do call myself a feminist still, but I don't always like that label. Mm. Um, But I think that, you know, I still feel so excluded from the movement. I feel like whenever I want to speak about, specifically about being a Muslim woman, Mm. because that is something that's very contested in feminism, I think. Yes. um, My voice is often very silenced and I'm Mm. told that, you know, I'm being divisive, I'm being divisive or I don't know what I'm talking about because I am Muslim. Mm. Um, And I think I think this is the experience of um, a lot of women of color, a lot of women. Yes, Um, definitely. You know, a lot of my friends of color, they don't feel comfortable with the word feminism anymore or Mm. with the movement. And I think it's very sad because, um, you know, the movement could be inclusive. And I think. Um, another group of women that the feminist movement as it stands really excludes is trans women. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, trans women of color specifically. Um, and it's just, it's very sad because I think, I think the feminist movement has done a lot, um, but it has consistently from it, the beginning left out so many marginalized women. Mm, yeah. Um, absolutely. He on all the points that you've raised and this treatment uh, or within mainstream feminism where you can't be you know being a feminist and being a muslim is you know they're they're mutually exclusive you're not allowed for some reason or Mm -hmm. um i remember being in some circles actually a few years back when i was at university um among i mean i'll call them my i guess associates i wouldn't call them my friends because i no longer speak to them but i remember a particular conversation that we had around um you know women in islam um, mm-hmm. because you know I personally come from a Muslim background I don't necessarily practice Islam I'm not particularly religious mm-hmm. at all but I, I've got family members who are and and some of them who wear the hijab and I spoke about them you know being feminists but also practicing their faith and being very happy doing both and the reaction that I got was you know you, you can't really be a feminist if you're a Muslim you know, they, they just don't work they don't really combine uh, they don't gel together nicely and I found that very um, I found that quite repulsive, actually, because surely if you're if you're a feminist, you're not going to be excluding other people by virtue of their faith or their, you know, their religion. Mm-hmm. So that was a very antagonistic sort of reaction to it. And um, as someone who's no longer you know, religious, I, I don't know what the reception is. But when I speak to, you know, people like my cousin or other family members, that's the same sort of reaction similar to you, you know, I don't really want to be labeling myself as as a feminist because of the association of that term with um, discrimination against, you know, women, marginalized groups, Mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, transgender women of color or queer women or women of uh, who identify with a particular faith um so there's certainly a, a wider conversation i think to be had around reframing the narrative around feminism what it actually means but again you know there are a lot of people who are including myself who who's you know reclaimed that term feminism mm-hmm. and made it into i guess a, a personal concept um which you can define for yourself so yeah I, I, that's i guess the only way to sort of refute uh, the mainstream discourse, which which can be very discriminatory and exclusionary mm-hmm. against people who aren't necessarily mainstream, quote unquote. Um, but yeah, really, really interesting um, response from you on that. Um, and I'm sure my listeners will be very engaged uh, in everything that you said um, throughout this podcast and a, a very nice um, or inspiring final um, comment 
on on feminism um but yeah I mean it's been a really really interesting chat uh with you I hope that um if if circumstances allow and if you're ever in London or in the UK uh, it would be great to meet you um post-pandemic of course but um I hope you've enjoyed this discussion and um, I'm looking forward to reading um henna wars thank you thank um, you so much and thank you thank you for inviting me onto your podcast I had a great time chatting with you yeah it's been really 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 fun um would you like to tell us uh, when the next book honey and issues guide to fake dating will be out Yes. So Honey and Issues Guide to Fake Dating is coming out May 25th in the US and May 27th in the US, uh, sorry, in the UK and Ireland. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on today. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I love your name, by the way. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you found this discussion or topic interesting and you want to share your views, We'd love to hear from you. I'm so grateful to those of you who have taken the time to leave me comments, reviews and messages about your thoughts on the podcast. It's really helped inform my direction for this season. Keep your comments coming. I really do love them. You can find us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook by searching for Brown Don't Frown Podcast and on Twitter at BDF podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at tanyasweeklydose.com. Please do join the conversation using the hashtag Brown Don't Frown podcast. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, I'd be super grateful if you could leave me a rating and review as this helps the podcast garner further traction. Please like, share and subscribe. Until next time, thank you. <laughs>